Well, the world feels like it's in a bit of a mess right now with ongoing wars and deep divisions and plummeting civility and soaring anger and anxiety. Contributing to all these troubles, says New York Times columnist David Brooks, is the breakdown of moral and social skills. We have a choice right now. We can become bitter or we can become better. And healthy people create healthy societies. Feeling valued and seen and heard and understood is essential for good health. David sets out to make those words and concepts less abstract with practical skills and explains why improving the mess in the world begins with respecting and understanding each other. His new book is called How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. And David Brooks joins me now. Hello. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Nice to talk to you. Um, And you've done a great job with this book. You've done what a great writer does, which is to illuminate and explore uh, an idea that most of us kind of sense exists but don't really know how to tackle, don't really know what form it takes. So so what is the problem here in your view? Well, I think our societies have gotten sadder, um, rising suicide rates, rising mental health problems, rising loneliness. Uh, the one in the U.S. that haunts me is the number of Americans who say they have no close personal friends has gone up by fourfold since the year 2000. And so when societies become sad, they become mean. Uh, when you um, uh, when you feel you're isolated, you feel unsafe, and so you lash out. And so with all the rising sadness statistics, there are a bunch of rising meanness statistics, rising hate crimes, rising violence. Uh, I was just speaking to a, a nurse the other day who said her main challenge is to keep staff. The patients have become so abusive that the nurses burn out and they want to leave the profession. So we've just got society, sadness and meanness in society. And in my argument, one of the causes of that is that people just haven't been trained in the skills of treating each other with kindness and consideration and respect. And these are skills, and it, and it, just like the skills you might learn to do carpentry or to do journalism or to play tennis. And there are skills like how to be a great conversationalist, how to listen well amid disagreement, how to break up with somebody without crushing their heart how to host a dinner party while while making everybody feel included. And so in the book, I just try to walk people through these skills from the first moment you meet someone to sitting with someone who has depression to sitting with someone who really rapidly disagrees with you. How do you deal with all these situations and treat people with kindness and consideration? And so the book is meant to be super practical of how to do these skills. And my hope is that as we get better at being considerate toward each other, We'll build trust, our societies will be happier, and our politics may be less vicious. All of those things you describe, um, being a good party guest and treating people well and knowing the right way to act in the right situation, I don't think anyone would disagree that they are important. But I think some people listening might say, well, the idea of having to train somebody in those skills seems a bit weird. Has there ever been a time in human history where that was normal to teach things like this? I think it was more normal. I mean, you look at the declining statistics, the rising sadness, which I refer to, and you look especially to declining levels of trust, trust in our institutions and trust in societies. Uh, it's all, um, you know, it's hard to have a healthy democracy when society is, is rotting uh, at the relational level. And so I think those skills were taught formerly by places like churches or synagogues or mosques, which more people used to attend. I think they were taught um, by um, 
extended families. When you lived in an extended family with the cousins and uncles and aunts and crazy relatives, you had to develop some pretty high social skills. And mostly they were taught by the schools. Uh, for many years and for many centuries, really, schools from left to right, religious or secular, were uh, they thought their primary job was to teach character skills, was to teach people to be, uh, as one school headmaster in the Stowe School in Britain said, um, I want to produce students who are acceptable at a dance, invaluable at a shipwreck. <laughs> and schools used to have, and so that's like, you want to train people who can like come through in, in, in a crisis. Uh, and, you know, they, schools used to have things like courtesy clubs of how to be polite or thrift clubs, how to save money. They really thought moral formation was their main job. And now in many of our societies, schools think helping people prepare for a job is their main job or getting into some fancy university is their main job. But character formation has fallen by the wayside. And so there's a sociologist named Chris Smith at Notre Dame, and he asked students to talk about their moral dilemmas. And he found they hadn't really given morality as much thought. And I've taught college off and on a university for 20 years. And my students are wonderful, but as they would be first to tell you, they're morally inarticulate. They haven't been given the categories to think through how to become a better person. And so a lot of what I try to do in my life is like fill that void and try to say, how do you, how do you become better? And what do we need to do to become better human beings? This stuff does not come naturally. We have to be taught by somebody. Why did things change? And, and when did they change? My theory is they changed after World War II. Uh, and so if you go back to the 19th century or the first half of the 20th century uh, in our societies, people had a realistic but low view of human nature, that human beings are pretty cooperative, but we're also quite selfish most of the time. And so we need, if we're going to make a democracy out of these people, we need to do moral formation. And moral formation is just a pompous way of talking about three things. How to help people restrain their natural selfishness, how to be self-controlled. Second is how to find an ideal and purpose in life uh, and uh, so that your life has meaning. And third, it's teaching people social consideration skills, how to thank someone. I had a young, one of my students came up to me and said, you know, I've had a few boyfriends in my life and all of them ghosted me. At the end of the relationship, they didn't have the consideration to say, let's have a conversation. I'm afraid this isn't working out for me. They just vanished. And so, of course, she goes through the world filled with, um, filled with distrust. Uh, and uh, she's going to be distrustful. The next guy's going to ghost her too. And so we just haven't taught how to do these basic skills. On the other hand, when I asked people over the last four years that I spent researching this book, tell me about a time when somebody really got you, when somebody really saw you. Their eyes light up, and sometimes they remember small episodes that happened decades before. They thought that real person really understood me. They made me feel valuable. And so we'd all like to be able to do that. There's a little test or a little um, a question that anyone listening today can ask themselves, and that's a question of what sort of person they are. Are they an eliminator or are they a diminisher? These are terms you've come up with. Can you explain the characteristics of each? Sure. A diminisher is someone who stereotypes and ignores. They don't make you feel seen. Often they're not curious about people. And I've, I've sometimes I'll leave a party and I think, you know, that whole time nobody asked me a question. And I've come to think that uh, only about 30 or 40 percent of the people you meet are question askers. The rest are perfectly nice, but they're just not that curious about you. <laughs> uh, illuminators, on the other hand, make you feel lit up. They're curious about you. They ask questions. They uh, just can see the world a little from your point of view. 
And so, for example, there was a novelist wrote about 100 years ago in Britain named Ian Forster. And his biographer wrote of him that to be, be with him was to be, quote, seduced by an inverse charisma, a sense of being listened to with such intensity that you had to be your best, most honest, and sharpest self. <laughs> and so who would want to be that guy? There's a story told about Jenny Jerome, who would go on to become Winston Churchill's mother. And in the late 19th century, when she was a young woman, she was at a dinner party, and she happened to be seated next to the Prime Minister of Britain, uh, uh, William Gladstone. And she left that party thinking that Gladstone was the cleverest person in England. Hmm. Then a couple, sometime later, she's seated next to Gladstone's great political rival, Benjamin Disraeli, and she leaves that dinner thinking she's the cleverest person in England. So it's <laughs> good to be Gladstone. Better to be Disraeli. We want to make other people feel like they're really, they've added something of value to the world, and they'll leave conversations with us walking on air. And that's not a bad starting point, right? Asking more questions. You've said that asking questions of another person is a moral act. It's not hard. It's not a grand gesture, but it's a, a small, simple habit you can form. Yeah, it's what you and I do in our profession. So hopefully we're decent at it. Hmm. Uh, you know, um, uh, you know, I start out small. You're like you got to build trust. So I, I often ask people, uh, "Where are you from?" Because I want to know. I want to know pe- people talk about their childhood. Uh, or where'd you get your name? That gets people talking about their ethnicity. Or I, I ask something about something they're proud of. If they love their sports team, I ask them about their sports team. And that's to establish trust. Then I get a little more whimsical. I, I once asked a, an academic, um, tell me about your least, your favorite, least unimportant thing about yourself. Tell me about your favorite unimportant thing about yourself. And I learned that this theologian watches a lot of reality, trashy reality TV. <laughs> and if you if you want to know my favorite unimportant thing about me is I really like early Taylor Swift more than later Taylor Swift. <laughs> uh, so that's just a little insight uh, into who I am, I guess. Like I'm really mourning my high school breakups like early Taylor. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, but then you, as you get on, you can ask big questions. You want to be big questions. Like if this five years is a chapter in your life, what's the chapter about? Or uh, uh, how does fear show up in your life? What what would you do if you weren't afraid? Or what crossroads are you at? A lot of us are in the middle of a transition of some sort or another. So what crossroads are you at? Uh, and, you know, I, I was at a dinner party recently, and I asked the group, uh, how do your ancestors show up in your life? Because we're all formed by our heritage. And so there was a Dutch family at the group, and they they talked about how Dutch heritage shaped their personalities. There was a black family. They talked about the American African-American experience. I talked about 5,000 years of Jewish history and how it shapes how I see the world. And it was just a, a fun conversation where we're exploring things together. And it starts with a big question that's going to lift us up out of the normal mundane things. I'm talking to New York Times columnist David Brooks. His book is called How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. Um, You know, you point to post-World War II. Of course, um, the world since then, the Western world, has been the story of capitalism. And capitalism is the, I guess, is the story of transactions, Um, a lot of transactions. Is part of the problem that that transactionality has seeped into our human relationships, do you think? I think so. I think that capitalism makes us instruments to each other, objects to each other. I think social media has had a negative effect. Uh, and on social media, there's a judgment everywhere and understanding nowhere. And people are performing on social media. They're often not really curious about anybody else. They just want to do their own little performance. 
I think individualistic cultures also um, were, I think we're, we're, we default to shyness. Uh, and a lot of the reasons people don't see each other because they don't, they don't want to see invading their privacy. And I uh, talked to a researcher at Chicago named Nick Epley, and he was riding on a commuter train and he, he, because he's a psychologist, he understands that people are happiest when they're communing with another. We're happiest when we're in connection to another. Mm. And so he asked people, he paid people for the next couple of months to talk to strangers on a commuter train. <laughs> and then he interviewed them afterwards. And they all said it was great. It was way better than their rides when they were just in their screens. And extroverts said this, introverts said this. And his conclusion is we underestimate how much we'll enjoy talking to a stranger in some setting. We underestimate how fast we're going to go deep. We underestimate uh, just how memorable it's going to be. And so even taking his little bit of research, I now am more likely to talk to strangers on a plane or a train or a bus or something. And it, sure enough, I have way more memorable times than I did if I was just like scrolling through my phone. You identify an obsession with data, and I'd like you to maybe tell us a bit about this. It seems to me that one of the um, problems here is that if we look too much at statistics and research and academic reports, we sometimes miss the individual stories and the and the richness of human experience that can't be summed up by data. Am I getting close there? Yeah, absolutely on point. So if you're a social scientist, you do market research, you want to know how groups of behave, people behave. And so you collect data and you find out what the mean is, and median behavior, the distribution of behavior, and you learn a lot about making generalizations. And if I suppose if you're going to sell sneakers, you want to know how large populations are going to see, are going to like what their taste in sneakers is. But if you want to know the one person right in front of you, data does not help. Uh, and so, I, you know, I encountered recently a, a woman who was a big Trump supporter in the U.S., but was also a lesbian biker who converted to Sufi Islam after surviving a plane crash. <laughs> and I'm like, Whoa, what stereotype does she fit into? <laughs> and most, most people don't fit into stereotypes. And one of the great ways to missee someone is to uh, say, um, is to do a thing called stacking, where you learn one fact about the person, this person supports Donald Trump. And then you make a whole series of other assumptions about what that person must be like. And I found in conducting interviews that that's just wrong. Uh, most people do not fit the stereotypes. They're way more complicated. And frankly, their lives are w way more interesting than the generalizations we make about groups of people. And so I'm trying to learn this skill of lear learning, learning about each person one by one. And that's why conversation is so important. That's why question asking is so important. You really can't imagine what's going on in another person's head. The average person, according to University of Texas research, accurately understands what's going on in another person's head as they're talking to them only about 20% of the time. We're just not as good at this as we think we are. And so if you want to know what's going on in somebody else's head, there's only one way to do that. Talk to them. Ask them a question. How do you see this? Tell me more about that. Uh, what am I missing here? And if you do that, if you try, as they say, to stand in another person's standpoint, to see how they see the world. You may not agree with them, but you'll understand where they're coming from. And at least you'll be showing them respect. And especially when you're talking across difference of ideology or any kind of difference. Respect in a conversation is like air. When it's present, nobody notices. But when it's absent, it's all anybody can think about. So you want to show respect. Uh, and that is one of the essences of being able to talk to somebody who's 
political ideology you find insufferable. <laughs> Speaking of which, I was checking out your Wikipedia page this week. David Brooks is an American conservative political and cultural commentator. Do words like conservative do the trick in 2023, do you think? I don't think so. Like, I, I'm a hero of, I'm one of my heroes is Edmund Burke, the Irish conservative statements. And so that's sort of a philosophical conservatism. But in fact, I haven't voted for a Republican, our rightward party, since 2004, I think. So uh, I think I, I've shifted a little, but I think the situation has shifted. And so when I was really most most conservative was in the 80s when I was worried about that our, our economies were getting less dynamic. Now, I don't think that's the main problem. I think the main problem is the productivity and the goods of society are not equitably shared. And so I think government should take some actions to increase social mobility to help those who have been left behind by the modern economy. So I guess that puts me more on the left. Uh, but uh, I, I don't, I just think the problems have changed. I haven't really had a philosophical shift. But I will say, and this is, goes back to that stacking point I was making, if you read the comments to the New York Times, people have a label for me conservative. And then they assign me every view that modern Republicans <laughs> hold. And so the idea that there's some distinction between me and Donald Trump is lost on people, even though I've spent the last six or seven years bashing Donald Trump every which way. But And so it's a reminder of the power of a label and how, how wrong we are when we see people through some label. Yeah, and one of the reasons I ask that is that there is a tendency to, um, or before I listen to this person, let me check what side they're on. Um, but then, you know, if one of those commenters in the comment section was next to you on a bus, you could probably talk for a few hours and you would become quite close. And actually, the, the idea of who you voted for, or who you voted for 30 years ago, or what your core political beliefs are, might not even come up. Yeah, and, you know, when I'm talking to people, um, I'm trying to get us into story mode. So like now, when I'm, even when I'm asking people about politics, I, I ask, um, uh, I don't ask, what do you believe? I, I ask, how did you come to believe that? Mm. And suddenly they're telling me a story about some person who shaped their values or some experiment or some experience that did. And so now we're, we're, we're talking. And one of the conversational tips I give people is make them authors, not witnesses. When people are telling you about some episode in their life, they don't go into enough detail. And so if you say, well, where was your boss sitting when she said that? Suddenly they're, they're like novelists. They're like telling you the story of what happened in all its richness. And you get a sense of who they are. And I may not, I may be with a Trump person. He, I don't support the candidate he supports. And I think that person is very dangerous. But at least I understand the story that led him to get to the pop point where he is. Did your view of what wisdom is change as you wrote this book? Yeah, I used to think wisdom was like the like being Dumbledore or Yoda, the ability <laughs> to to like utter wise maxims that would then change everybody's life. But now I think wisdom is just the ability to be tenderly receptive, to sit with someone and to hear their story and to see them in the noble struggle and create an atmosphere of hospitality so they feel free to express themselves. And most of us don't sit down and craft our life story. It's only when somebody asks us. And so wise people have the ability first to be curious. And I find that most people love telling about their life story because they've never been asked and nobody ever asked them. But then they have the ability to like pull out the parts that are you've left out of your clean tail. 
And they say, well, you have, have you left this out? And they become like story editors. They help us make our story more accurate. And I think that's what therapists do. People come to therapy because their story is no longer working, often because they get causation wrong. They blame themselves for things that are not their fault, and they blame others for things that are their fault. And so, but a good therapist, like a good friend, say, well, you left this part out. How, how is this in your life? Uh, and they, they help us tell a more accurate story where we feel we have control. And once we are telling a story where we're the hero, we have control here, then we're going to lead a happier life. Finally, David, what would you like people to do differently after hearing this interview and after reading your book? Uh, one is, uh, well, here I'll give you three uh, conversational tips. Uh, one is uh, be a loud listener. So I have a buddy when I'm talking to him, I, uh, he's, it's like talking to a Pentecostal church. He's like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, preach that, preach that. And I love talking to that guy. You like a loud listener. Like yeah. you were kind enough to, to giggle and laugh a few times. I, I love that. It makes the speaker feel honored and like, oh, I'm saying something interesting here. <laughs> uh, another one is uh, don't be a topper. Huh. Uh, if you tell me about problems with your teenage son, my instinct is to say, oh, I know what you're going through. I'm having problems with my Tommy. And it seems like I'm trying to relate. But what I'm really trying to do is take the conversation away from you and onto me. And so I, I'm guilty of this all the time. Uh, don't be a topper. And then finally, um, find the disagreement under the disagreement. Sometimes we'll be arguing about some political matter. And it's interesting to ask, well, why do we disagree? What, what philosophically deep down is causing us mm. to see this so differently? And that way we stop fighting and we start exploring. Like, what's the philosophical thing under our surface disagreement? And suddenly we're cooperating and trying to find uh, uh, what the core disagreement is and that's a more interesting and b more you learn a lot about yourself when you do that love it uh, what a privilege to talk to you uh, david brooks is my guest he's a columnist for the new york times among the many things that he does with his day and his new book is called how to know a person the art of seeing others deeply and being deeply seen thank you for your time today oh it's a thrill to be with you thanks so much for the invitation 